I've recently gotten to know a young dad who has no church background or experience whatsoever. He, he knows I'm a pastor, and, and one day he, he asked me, well, well, what do you actually do in your job? And I said, well, I oversee all the creative stuff that we do at the church, like communications, digital production, and our worship services. And he said, well, tell me about your worship services. I said, well, we have two different styles of worship service. And he went, why? I said, well... We have two different demographics in our congregation, and, and each of them connect with God with different styles of music. So we, we offer two different styles of worship service. One is kind of more organ and orchestral with some light band elements thrown in, and, and the other is, is kind of band-driven and uh, kind of soft rock. It, it takes a lot of its cues from, from U2. He went, U2? Why? And then I began to explain about the development of modern worship music in the 90s and early 2000s. But generally, I just left the conversation going, what we do on Sundays is weird. I mean, think about it. We gather for 60 minutes and we sing songs about blood, death, and coming back to life. The presence of an invisible God to whom we also pray and give money. And then we hear a short talk on a thousands-year-old book. And sometimes, like today, we eat flesh and drink blood. Spiritually, of course, only the Catholics believe we do it physically. And if you're like, Ellis, that's normal, then let me tell you, for anyone who hasn't grown up in church, it is weird. But not only that, we have a mission to make disciples and serve and love our neighbors, and we've only got a few years on earth in which we can accomplish that. And yet, we mainly choose to focus our attention as a church on gathering on Sundays to sing Kumbaya. Why aren't we out there doing the stuff? Why are we in here worshiping? My name's Ellis, by the way, and I'm really glad that you're here for this weird time of worship today. If you're new with us and you are thinking, wow, this is all a little bit strange, I'm just really glad that you decided to join us. And in the next 20 minutes, I am going to share a message with you from a thousands-year-old book, and I hope that it will answer the question, why on earth do Christians gather every Sunday and worship together. To do so, we're going to continue working our way through the Old Testament book of Joshua in a series we've called Ready, Set, Go, asking how can we be ready for the work that God is going to do in our lives. Now, Joshua, this book is set over 3,200 years ago in the Middle East, and we're following the story of the people of God, Israel. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt by sending plagues on the Egyptians. He brought them miraculously through the wilderness by feeding them food that fell from the sky. And now he's brought them across a raging river by heaping up the waters and allowing them to walk through on dry ground. And why has God done all this? So that he can give his people the land that he'd promised to their forefather Abraham about 500 years earlier. And we pick up their story immediately after the crossing of that river, the River Jordan. We heard about that last week. And this is what we read in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Well, having heard about Israel crossing the River Jordan, we we have a summary statement of the effect that this has upon the current occupants of the land. They were melting in fear. And perfect timing, right? 
okay? Just as the people enter the land that they're about to take, right before they begin these battles with their enemies, their enemies are quaking in their boots. I mean, put yourself in the position of Joshua. He's the leader of the army of Israel. What would be your next move at this very moment? Strike while the iron is hot, right? Well, let's keep reading. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And I'm sure Joshua is going, what? All the nations we're about to conquer are are melting in fear. The, The army that I'm commanding, having just taken over from my predecessor, has finally started to respect me as their leader. And the land that you have promised is right there for the taking. And you want me to do what? Circumcise the men? Earlier this year, the the England football team, I think you guys wrongly call it soccer, played in their first major championship final in 55 years. And in the first two minutes, they had a really promising attack on goal. Now, my sister was watching the final with some friends in an English country garden due to COVID regulations, and they'd hooked up their TV as best they could. But the uh, interference and the signal was a little bit weak, and just as Luke Shaw was about to strike the ball, this happened. <gasps> Wait! We don't know what happened next! Wait! Wait! <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was our goal! Oh my gosh! This is literally what is happening to Joshua and the army of Israel. Right as they are about to strike, God says, I need you to stop and circumcise all the boys. (laughs) What? We're poised. They're afraid. We've got the momentum. We're about to take the land that you have promised. Why would we stop and purposefully injure ourselves? Why would we put the army out of commission? Surely this is insanity. But here's why. Our God desires worship before warfare. Would you say that with me? Worship before warfare. God calls his people to stop. Right at what seems like the crucial moment when they, when they have the momentum, when, when the land that he's promised them is there for the taking, in order to worship him. Worship before warfare. You see, the reason the people had to be circumcised is is twofold. We we find out part one of that reason in in verses four and five, where it says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now, circumcision was the sign that you belonged to the people of God, just like baptism is that sign today. Frankly, I'm quite glad we practice baptism rather than circumcision, not least because as the pastor, I'd be the one in charge of actually performing the act. But circumcision was something that God had commanded of Abraham and all his male descendants. And 40 years earlier, when the people of God left Egypt, the men were all circumcised. But those who left did not choose to circumcise the sons that were born to them in the last 40 years. And the reason for this is not fully explained in our passage, but I think it serves as a warning to all of us parents. We should not fail in our responsibility to pass on the legacy of faith to 
our children. Yes, ultimately, our kids will decide whether they remain true to that faith, but our role as parents is to pass on that legacy. And the people coming out of Egypt, they they didn't do that. But thanks be to God, he still found a way. (laughs) And on this day, right as they were entering the land, he used Joshua to pass on that legacy to those who were born in the last 40 years. But yet that still doesn't explain why they had to do it on that day. I mean, couldn't they have waited a few weeks until they'd fought all the battles? Well, no. Why? Well, this leads us to the second reason they had to be circumcised. Because it was time for the people of God to celebrate the the most important feast in their calendar year, the feast of the Passover. Verse 10 is where we read about it. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Every year on the 14th day of the first month, the people were commanded to celebrate a feast which commemorated their exodus from slavery in Egypt. A feast which celebrated that their children were spared, literally passed over by God's judgment because of the sacrifice of a lamb. And as part of those instructions given to the people of Israel 40 years earlier, all those who participated in the Passover must be circumcised. And so here we have it. Let's see, let's see if we're tracking together. Why did God command Israel to stop right at the moment when they had the momentum? Worship before warfare. You see, when they crossed the River Jordan, it was only four days before the Passover meal. And they needed to celebrate that meal together as an act of worship. They did it every 14th day of the first month, just like every Sunday we gather in worship. Every 14th day of the first month, they celebrated the Passover. But in order to do so, everyone who celebrated it needed to be circumcised. Worship before warfare. I remember the first time I went on a short-term missions trip. I went with a group of uh, 20 or so graduating seniors from high school, we traveled to western rural Kenya, and we spent some time there working with some local organizations that were helping those who were suffering from the HIV AIDS epidemic. And this was an incredibly eye-opening experience, and it was incredibly emotionally taxing. Every day we were being asked to go out there and minister to those people. We were being sent into people's homes to pray for those who were sick. We were being sent into schools to share Bible stories and songs with the kids. We were being sent into churches to preach and to lead worship. We were being sent to to widows groups to offer them encouragement. And we were meeting with local HIV support groups for young adults the same age as us who were destined to suffer the rest of their life with this disease. And every day our hearts were torn apart. We were emotional wrecks for the two weeks that we were there. And yet, we had to continue ministering and serving to these people. It was like going to war. And every morning, before the sun had risen, we'd all be woken up, roused from our beds, and before we'd even eaten breakfast, we'd be gathered together in something that we called chapel. And at chapel, while we were still reeling from the emotions of the previous day, we began to sing songs of praise to God with voices that sounded more like frogs than than humans. And we listened to the word of God proclaimed to us by each other. 
before we'd eaten, before the sun had risen, before we'd got out the door and gone on to do the work that God had called us to do, we worshipped. Worship before warfare. Worship wasn't the work that God was calling us to do in Kenya. But we knew that if we didn't worship, we wouldn't be ready for warfare. You know, the same is true for us today. We, the church, are God's army. We've been called out of the world and sent back into the world, not to kill, but to save lives. We are called to lay down our lives every single day for the sake of the world, to make disciples, to love our neighbors, and to care for the least of these. That's our mission. But before all of that begins, what must we do? Worship. Worship before warfare. Now, I was talking with someone after church a couple of weeks ago, and they were remarking how they just so desperately need Sundays right now. Every week they come in and they just feel worn down by everything that's going on in our world and and their place in it and, and trying to love and care for others. And every week they leave our Sunday services lifted up. In fact, they said they wish that that we did services midweek as well. And I didn't say at the time, but afterwards I thought I should have said, that's why we have life groups and celebrate recovery. Because worship isn't just a once a week occurrence. Church, we so desperately need to be with God before we go and do things for God. That's how God's designed us. We need worship before warfare. Otherwise, we will become beleaguered worship before warfare. There's one more thing that I think is an important concept about worship and warfare, and it's this. Worship is warfare. Say that with me. Worship is warfare. You know, it may not seem like it necessarily, but the very act of worship is an act of war. See, we don't fight against flesh and blood as Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, but against spiritual forces of evil. The real battle going on in our lives is not physical, but spiritual. And worship is a weapon of warfare. And in next week, we're going to hear about how Israel conquered the city of Jericho. And I don't want to spoil the surprise for anyone, but they did it by worshiping God through trumpets and shouts of praise. They worshiped and the walls came down. Later in the Old Testament, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, he sent God's people into battle, not with the fiercest warriors in the front line, but with the choir in the front line, singing the praises of God. And do you know what happened? God routed their enemies and their enemies were defeated. And in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we read about Paul and Silas imprisoned in the city of Philippi. And they didn't break their chains by yanking them out of the wall or by convincing the guard that he needed to set them free. No, their chains broke because they sang songs of praise to their God while they were still in them, and God sent an earthquake to break them free from the chains that bound them. Worship is warfare. I remember a friend of mine, he's a a clergyman in the Church of England, he told me once that he was asked to be the local exorcist 
by the Church of England. And uh, he, he reluctantly said yes, realizing that most of the priests in that area didn't even believe in demons, and, and yet there were still people in need. And he said that on occasion he would get called out not to minister to a person, but to minister to a place. There's lots of old houses in the UK, and, and many people felt that there was some dark spiritual presence in these houses. And so he would come out, and, uh, and by the way, if all this talk of spiritual warfare is just kind of new for you, you're not sure about it, we preached a whole series on this back in 2017. You can find that on our website. I'd recommend you go take a listen to that, and it will help you grapple with some of these concepts. Anyway, he told me that when he came to these places of spiritual darkness, his kind of MO was to do one thing and then leave. And that one thing was to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, with the people who lived in that house. Now, he said that on almost all of the occasions that he did this, the inhabitants of the houses reported that the spiritual darkness that they had experienced left after they'd celebrated communion. Now, I'm not saying that communion is some magic spell that we can just cast. It didn't always work like that. Sometimes there are other things that we don't see initially. But what I am sure of is that when we celebrate this physical act of communion together, something takes place in the spiritual that is powerful. Spiritually, in this meal, God meets with us. Spiritually, God wages warfare against our flesh, against the world, and against the devil. Something changes in the spiritual when we worship together. Worship is warfare. And this morning we're coming together around this, the Lord's table. And Jesus originally ate this meal with his disciples the night before he died. And the feast that they were celebrating that night was the Passover. But on that occasion, as they celebrated the Passover together, Jesus explained that the Passover meal was always pointing forward to something greater. That the Passover sacrifice of a, a pure spotless lamb for a people in slavery pointed forward to the sacrifice of the pure spotless son of God for a people in slavery to sin. That the breaking of the bread in the Passover meal pointed forward to the broken body of Jesus upon the cross as he bore our sins. That the, the wine poured out in the Passover meal into the cup pointed forward to the blood of Jesus spilt for us on the cross. This Passover meal pointed forward to the greatest act of warfare that has ever taken place. The decisive victory of God over the power of sin and death on the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus commanded us to remember that victory by celebrating this meal when we gather together. And we're going to do that today. And as we do, I, I don't know if it feels like you're fighting a battle in some area of your life. I know many are. Maybe it's against sin. Maybe it's against sickness, disease. Maybe it's against some spiritual darkness. But if that's you, I want to ask today that as you partake of this meal, as you eat that bread and, and drink that juice, that you might believe and trust that this act of physical worship is an act of war 
against that area of your life. That as you worship in this way, Jesus is fighting the battle on your behalf. And he has already won the decisive victory. So you should have received one of those cups on the way in. If you didn't, put your hand up. We have ushers who are going to be coming around and they'll be pleased to get you one. Hang on to it for a second. I know we all want to rustle the the little plastic thing, but if you can hold it just for a couple of minutes, we'll direct you when it's time to do so. So I received from the Lord that which I deliver now unto you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. He blessed it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after dinner saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now we ministering on behalf of the Lord offer to you this bread and this juice that they may be to you the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ and that in the partaking of them, you may find that Jesus is waging warfare on your behalf against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your body that was broken, your blood that was spilt. And that on that cross of Calvary, you won the decisive victory in the battle against sin, death, and hell. And today we come to you and we need to know that victory in our lives. There are battles that we are facing, battles that we are fighting. And this morning we choose to make this act of worship our act of war. And through it to trust and believe that you are waging warfare on our behalf. That our worship is warfare in and through the body and blood of Jesus. So take these common elements, set them apart for a holy purpose. And use them, Lord, in our lives to set us free to have the victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.